It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Will you still have to buy a pension annuity after the election? We look at new proposals from the Tories. Should higher earners seeking tax relief turn to venture capital trusts? We explain the rules. And are cash ISAs worth bothering with if you only save tax on 0.1% interest? All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Alice Ross. Hello. And Steve Lodge. Hello. And our special studio guest, Matthew Woodbridge, Head of Investment Products at Chelsea Financial Services. Hello. So let's start with the money news. This week, Shadow Chancellor George Osborne announced that a Conservative government would scrap the rule that makes buying a pension annuity compulsory. Under current laws, savers have to use their pension funds to purchase an annuity by age 75, which will then provide them with an income for the remainder of their life. But annuity values have fallen in recent times, offering savers much less income in retirement, half the level that was available back in 1994. So some advisers say that there's now little justification for forcing savers into an annuity when they could draw income from their funds instead. Alice, um, who do you think stands to benefit from these proposals, assuming that they see the light of day? It will be wealthier investors who've built up a large pension pot that are mainly going to benefit from these proposals because the the ones that don't have a big pension are going to buy an annuity anyway. Because actually, if you want to go into what's called income drawdown, where you don't buy an annuity and you leave the pension invested in the stock market, you need you usually need at least 50 grand, well, more than that even, I mean, about 100 grand, 150 grand in your pension pot to make that worthwhile, to make it not worth the risk. So that's already cut out a large part of the population anyway. So we are talking about the wealthy few here who will stand to benefit from this. So the Tories could be, could be criticised for uh, looking after the... Uh, the wealthy again. Let's just um, remind ourselves of how the rules currently work. Um, at retirement, you can choose to buy an annuity, or you can choose to draw income from your from a pension fund. Then, when you reach age seventy-five, you, you still don't actually have to buy an annuity, do you? Yes. Well, there's this relatively recent thing introduced called ASP, alternatively secured pension, which kicks in at age seventy-five. So, if you were in USP, which is another word for income drawdowns, so unsecured pension. This is just basically taking money out of your pension fund and using it to, you know, spend. Exactly, and and meanwhile leaving the pension money invested in the stock market or wherever you want to put it, but you're not giving it to a life insurance company, basically. Um, so if you were in USP at age 74 and then you hit 75, you can go into ASP. Um, but 
this hasn't been very popular at all. Um, a pensions provider, AJ Bell, actually did a freedom of information request last year. And in December, it said that fewer than 3,000 people across the whole country had even bothered to go into ASP. So it's not actually that popular. The reason for that is that there are very high tax charges on your pension fund if you die while in ASP of up to 82%. So I think people are thinking it's just not really worth worth the bother. So not many benefits under the current system. Um, when you get to age 75, however, if you've deferred taking your annuity until that point, um, presumably the annuity rates will be quite a lot better and an annuity will not necessarily be a bad idea. There is that, yeah. I mean, obviously, the the older you are, the better the annuity rates, generally speaking. That's how the insurance companies work out what the rates are. So, so yes, if you're buying an annuity at age 75, you're going to get a much better rate than at age 70 or even age 74. Uh, the real reason that you would want to not buy an annuity at that age is likely to be that you want to pass on your pension money to your dependents, to your kids, your grandkids, whoever else. If you buy an annuity, you don't have that option. So this is going to apply to people who have a, an interest in, in leaving an inheritance with their pension fund, basically. So again, it's going to appeal to wealthier people who've got, who've got more to leave and who resent the idea of um, an insurance company basically keeping all of it or well, assuming that they don't sort of live so long that they get the better part of the deal, getting more income than their actual lump sum pension fund. Under the current rules then, um, there's not such a great difference. Uh, do you think this Tory proposal will win support? What's the reaction been in the in the market? I think it will win support. I mean, it's it's actually not, not that new. We've known for a while that the Tories wanted to at least raise the age at which you had to buy an annuity to 80 or 85, and the Liberal Democrats are also supportive of that proposal. Um, but pension people think that this is a good move because they think it will encourage more pension saving by people. They think if people know that their pension fund won't be taken off them at some point in the future and, you know, handed over to a life insurance company, if they can use it as part of their inheritance planning for kids, that that will make them more likely to save into a pension at a time when a lot of people are worrying about the demise of pension saving, given all this uh, scrapping of higher rate pension tax relief for higher earners. Um, so they're hoping that it will actually appeal to this uh, minority of people, but substantial um, interest in it anyway. But will it be a vote winner? We will have to wait and see. Thanks very much for that, Alice. And for more on how a rule change could affect your pension planning, you can read Alice's article in FT Money with this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, with interest rates at an all-time low, are the tax savings offered by cash individual savings accounts, or ISAs, still worth having? First, though, venture capital trusts. Between now and the end of the tax year, on the 5th of April, the amount of money invested into venture capital trusts is forecast to hit £250 million, an increase of 70% on last year. And the reason appears to be obvious – High earners with income of £150,000 or more can now invest only twenty to £30,000 into a pension with 40% tax relief. But they can still invest £200,000 into a VCT with 30% tax relief, a maximum tax saving of £60,000. But the investments that VCTs make can differ greatly, and the rules on how much risk they must take are about to change. So, Matthew... You study the VCT market on a, on a daily basis. Um, isn't it the case that you need to be aware that venture capital trusts are very different to pensions? They are a very different um, animal. I mean, they 
are used for retirement planning and, and they do pay out income for people in retirement. But um, whereas with pensions, they tend to be in sort of safer investments, VCTs are viewed as a much higher risk type of investment. There are positives on the VCT side, i.e. income from them is, is free of tax. Um, and also there's no capital gains um, tax payable on money made within the fund. Um, the limits are higher, but of course the holding period is much shorter than with a pension. You obviously have to hold that until retirement. And Alice touched upon you know, the, about annuitisation later on when you're 75. But VCTs are, only have a five-year holding period. Um, and I, th- I think this is key, but... At Chelsea Financial Services, we view them as a complement to a pension rather than as an alternative. Um, so it's not a natural progression. You've fulfilled your pension allowance, then you immediately put money into a venture capital trust. So it's, it's not the case that you could just shift the money you were going to put into a pension into uh, a VCT in spite of those uh, attractive tax breaks. Let's talk about the risk attached to VCTs, because um, some are an awful lot riskier than others. That's, I mean, as an asset class, they are viewed as, as high risk. However, there are different risks within the VCT sector. There are such things as planned exit or limited life, which attempt to take as little risk as possible and wind up after the minimum holding period of five, five years. You've then got the generalists um, who take a sort of medium risk um, and then the specialists where they will perceive to take the higher amount of risk for potential higher returns. But these will have usually um, sort of smaller, earlier stage companies which have you know, a greater propensity to fail. Now, these um, uh, planned exit or limited life VCTs, uh, there are quite a few of them around at the moment. And I think, as you, as you were saying, they basically look to take as little risk as possible and generate almost all of their returns just from the effect of the tax relief. Because you, know, you, you invest seventy pounds and it's it's worth a hundred. Um, what sort of things do they actually put the money in? Um, there's there are varying different types of limited life. Um, I would say that the ones that um, people are more familiar ones that invest in companies that have asset backing. So the VCT will have a charge over the assets of the company should it fail. I be able to return something back to shareholders in the VCT should that company fail, and these would are likely to be portfolios of pubs, perhaps children's nurseries, garden centres, that sort of thing. Um, Some are used within the entertainment industry where there's um, a sort of high visibility of cash flow um, and by that they can secure the assets on on the company that they're lending the money to, as it were. So they are lending the money generally at a better rate than they would get from the bank um, with a large incentive for that company to return the money after five years, which then fits in with the trust winding up. One question I suppose that all investors need to address is um, whether or not investments like this will continue to get these sorts of tax breaks. Um, We know of one change to the VCT rules that's coming up in April. That's to do with uh, how much uh, equity there needs to, to be compared with debt. Could you just explain what that rule change is? Um, currently, at the moment, a VCT must have, across the portfolio, 30% in equity. Um, and this, you know, what, what happens is, is that the VCT will try and take as little risk as possible in many respects because they want to generate returns for shareholders and not, not lose their money. What is currently been proposed, and it's come from a, a European Union state aid directive, um, that they say that funds that are raised after this tax year, so all funds raised this tax year are exempt and previous tax years, 
they will change it to 70% in equity. But Matthew, I mean, what's always puzzled me about VCTs is, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, they haven't had a great track record, have they? Um, so this is a fund with some fabulous tax breaks, but people still haven't made much money, if any, have they? I would say there's a, there's a huge difference in performance. The difference is quite staggering at times. Um, and I would say they've been in effect going since 1995 so some quite clear track records some have have done appallingly badly there's no no, no getting away from that um and a lot of that was during the technology boom um where companies had uh, no real assets they weren't profitable and they were given money which they subsequently lost but there are some quality managers who've been around for for that period of time who have generated regular returns for investors so it's all a question of making sure you completely understand the risks and indeed the track records of the managers. Matthew, thank you very much indeed for that. And if you'd like to know more about those risks and the tax reliefs attached to VCTs, look out for the article in FT Money this weekend and online at ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, ISAs. The conventional wisdom has it that if you are a taxpayer, you should always put the maximum amount into a cash ISA to earn interest on those savings tax-free. But the conventional wisdom always assumes that ISAs would pay more interest than 0.1% and would at least be competitive with ordinary taxed accounts. But Steve, looking at some of the ISA rates on the high streets uh, right now, that doesn't appear to be the case anymore. No, Matthew. I mean, there's a rogues gallery of big high street names that are paying just 0.1% on some of their, not all of their, but some of their ISA accounts. And analysts estimate possibly a million or more savers could be in these accounts. So, so, so who, who are these rogues? Let's, let's yes, name indeed. Them. Let's name them. Halifax, Santander, Barclays. Even, even dare I say it, the bearded one, Virgin Money's cash ISA is only paying 0.1%. So this is really uh, making ISAs very poor value um, when you compare with ordinary taxed accounts because you, you know you, you can earn far more than that on a conventional account. So why bother with the with the tax break? You, you could, Matthew, but you, equally you could earn just as little from a taxed account. Of course, uh, there are plenty of tax savings accounts paying 0.1 percent. I mean, the real what people should really be doing, of course, with a 0.1 percent savings uh, ISA account is looking for a better deal. Um, and we're just coming into what's commonly termed the ISA season now when banks and building societies will compete typically for people who haven't used up their allowances and people who want to use up their allowances in the new tax year. But anyone who's already got an existing ISA as well can take advantage of that competition to transfer those exist- their existing accounts to something new. And analysts are saying this year they expect rates to hit about th- up to about three and a half on the variable and the one-year fixed side, which will be where most of the money goes. Which is much better value. Now, I- I've, got a- I've got a cash ISA with one of those rogues. Where should I be looking to transfer? Well, analysts are saying they prefer one-year fixed rates because, generally speaking, you're going to be offered a small premium to the variable rate. So you might get three and a half against three and a quarter on a variable rate side. Of course, that rate is, by definition, fixed for a year. But in the coming year, people aren't expecting savings rates, variable savings rates, to move up very much. Um, even if base rates move up, those those uh, increases may not be passed on to variable rate savers. And, of course, if you go into a variable rate account, typically it's going, it may well have a bonus an introductory bonus which will fall off so you'd have to be aware that your rate would become less competitive in the future or indeed the bank and building society might play the games that have resulted in these 0.1% rates and arbitrarily cut 
um, that ostensibly competitive rate once they've raised the cash. Any particular good cash ISA rates that stand out to you? Well, I, as I said, I agree with the analysts that, that three and a half one year fix is a pretty good return. I mean, people, listeners won't be necessarily impressed by these returns given what uh, where savings rates have been traditionally. But don't forget, this is at a time when base rate is 0.5%. Um, and it's tax-free. And, and while there has been a bit of a debate about the, the why bother with this tax-free savings account if it's not going to pay anything, the real point is that um, with uh, expectations that taxes of all kinds are going to rise, well, this is another way of sheltering, uh, sheltering funds from tax in the future. So the real value comes through over the long term. And indeed, you, you'll recall... Um, we did some research a couple of months back which found that cash ices have actually outperformed their stock market equivalents over the past decade. Exactly. So just very quickly, give me a couple of names that I should be uh, looking at. Well, it's difficult. This, this is the problem. We're, we're right on the cusp of the season. Um, so, so I should wait. I, I think wait, yes. Okay. Yes, that's what I should have said. You know, wait for now. There are good rates out there. The danger is, of course, though, you move now and you look in something and tomorrow something better comes along. So I would put up the 0.1%. It's really just a uh, few weeks and then... Maybe from the end of this month, early next month, you really should have a good picture of of, of what competition is going to offer you. Thanks, Steve. I shall remain poised uh, with my ISA money um, and, uh, and and wait until the best rates come out. And uh, uh, you can get details of some of the, the current uh, top-paying uh, cash ISAs and the best taxable equivalents in Steve's article in FT Money this weekend. But that's all for this week's FT Money show. Remember, you can find weekday news updates on our website, ft.com forward slash money. And you can read and comment on our latest blog posts at ft.com forward slash money. Matters. We'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Steve, Alice, and Matthew Woodbridge of Chelsea Financial Services. Goodbye. Goodbye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.